Hi, this is Eric Nelson, board-certified sports chiropractor and neurokinetic therapy instructor. I'd like to welcome you to the inaugural edition of Inside the Brain Of, where I interview a manual therapist to get inside their brain and try to understand their approach to patient management. Initially, I'll focus on NKT providers, but maybe down the line I'll speak with some other like-minded professionals. Neurokinetic therapy was developed by David Weinstock over the past 30 years. David is a body worker from California and has put together an incredible technique that helps you break down patients' faulty movement patterns by identifying muscle imbalances and determining specifically what muscles aren't firing properly and which muscles are compensating for them. From this information, you can determine which muscles require manual therapy and what muscles need corrective exercises. By performing the right treatment and corrective exercise program, your patient can change their motor control center and reset their faulty movement patterns. The goal is to stop treating symptoms and start treating causes. NKT has absolutely changed my practice. My results have improved dramatically, and as a result, my practice is busier than ever. Plus, I thoroughly enjoy going to work every day as every patient brings a new challenge. In addition, my desire to learn has grown tremendously. Every night, I try to read or watch something that will expand my knowledge base. One thing that I love about NKT is that there's a diverse group of practitioners using this technique. We have chiropractors, physical therapists, massage therapists, medical doctors, osteopaths, strength and conditioning coaches, personal trainers, athletic trainers, kettlebell instructors, yoga teachers, Pilates instructors, acupuncturists, and I'm sure uh, others as well. Uh, each pr practitioner brings an incredible knowledge base to the technique, and as such, each person has a somewhat unique approach to how they treat their patients. In addition, while David has been teaching NKT to the masses for the past two and a half years or so, he's actually been teaching the technique for maybe the past 15 or 20 years. And as a result of that, there's a few people that have been using NKT for a long time. In fact, you can find some of these people on the NKT Scholars Facebook page. This is a private page for all students that have taken a level one NKT class. As a result of this page, there are some incredible collaborations and teaching lessons that occur every day. I know personally I learn something every day, and, and a lot of times that's even from the new students. When you join the NKT family, you learn pretty quickly who are the more experienced practitioners. And I know that when I have questions, I seek out these people personally. One person in particular stands out for me, and when I have a diff difficult case, I usually consult with him to get his opinion or to hear what his approach might be. I recently realized that if I'm asking these questions, I'm sure others have the same questions as well. So I thought maybe a podcast would be a good idea, and I guess uh, after tonight we'll find out. So my first guest is a massage therapist from California who I had the pleasure of meeting when I did my mentorship with David over the summer. He's one of the most brilliant people I know, and he's a pretty funny guy too. For my first interview, I'm excited to get inside the brain of the body mechanic, Thomas Wells. Hey, Thomas, how's it going? Hello, Eric. It's good to be with you. Yeah, thanks for joining me tonight. Um, I'm pretty sure everyone is going to be excited to hear your viewpoint on patient management. Uh, I know that, um, you know, before I knew who you were, uh, I'd see some, some of your posts, and I'd be like, wow, this guy is extremely knowledgeable. How, how does this guy know so much? So let's start with your background. Why don't you tell me, you know, how long you've been a, a massage therapist, where you went to school, you know, all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> well, I've been a massage therapist for, geez, I guess about 11 years. Okay. And uh, I got my start actually coming straight out of the military. I'm a former Marine. 
And coming straight out of the military, I got to start as a personal trainer. And uh, not long after starting that, I realized that kind of the the corrective work interested me far more than the <clears throat> far more than the traditional conditioning work. So I started kind of veering off in that direction and decided massage school would be kind of kind of a fun adjunct to what I was doing. At the time, I was really looking at it more as a hobby than anything else. But I went to massage school and started, you know, learning this kind of traditional massage techniques, all the while uh, running my, my training business. And I uh, I had a handful of clients that I would see on the weekends. Again, it was just like a little side gig. And one of my clients decided she wanted to become a massage therapist. And she went to the school in um, up in Marin County, Alive and Well, which is where David used to teach, uh, kind of the previous incarnation of NKT. Uh, they called it neuromuscular reprogramming. And she saw a demo of the work and thought it was amazing, and but didn't think it was really up her alley, but she thought it would be up mine. So she brought me a pamphlet on it <clears throat> to our next training session. And I believe I signed up that night to actually go to the class. And, you know, kind of the, the rest is history within, with NKT. <clears throat> so that was all probably after doing massage for about a year that I started adding the NKT to my work. And obviously, as it has for you, it kind of changed everything for me. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess a lot of people don't realize that um, David has been teaching it for a while in some form or another. So when you first learned it, was it how many people were in that class? Was it a small class? <clears throat> when I first learned it, I would say there was probably, I don't know, like 35 people or so and maybe a half dozen assistants. And the class was led by four different instructors. Uh, David was one of them. Then Jocelyn, Olivier, Gail, Olvang, and one other person whose name escapes me, but they're all old school NMR people. <clears throat> all people have been doing it like since the 80s when this work originated. Um, I would say of the people who were there, a very high percentage were taking it as a repeat course, because a lot of people were making the mistake of not implementing the work right away, and so they were kind of brain dumping it. So there are a lot of people there just retaking sometimes the third or fourth time just to really help the work sink in. And it wasn't because it was taught poorly. It was just kind of a bit of a paradigm shift for people and you know, you need to put that into practice right away and sharpen your skills or it will just go in in one ear out the other, which is exactly what happened for a lot of those folks there. Uh, thankfully, coming out of that course, I very quickly found out about the tutorial groups that were going on uh, in Marin at the time, led by David on a monthly basis. So that that's where I got a lot of my a lot of my advanced training. I went to those nearly every month for better part of a decade. So I was getting a lot of a lot of hands-on time with David over a period of about 10 years. Yeah, that's 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 priceless right there. And 
So I guess simultaneously, uh, were you taking other classes as well too? What other stuff were you, were, were you taking? Oh, I'm, oh yeah, I'm always taking classes. I'm kind of a seminar junkie, and I have I have friends in the industry, and we basically just have running competitions of like who who will either run out of time or money first from taking on taking all these courses, and usually I win. And uh, so I've taken a number of different other techniques over the years. Uh, all, all the while, I was running both my bodywork business and training business. I didn't stop training until about two, year, two years ago or so, or a year and a half ago, something like that. Um, but I went through a whole bunch of training-related education. I went through uh, – I've done all the training for ART. You know, ART has something like nine different courses. I've taken all of them. Uh, I'm actually working on becoming an instructor through them. Uh, I took all the all the Bowen therapy training. Uh, I went. Let's see what else did I do? Um, the ART Bowen did something called proprioceptive deep tendon reflex technique, which is another sort of neuro technique, uh, sort of along the same vein as NKT, uh, taught by uh, a Mexican spinal surgeon, Dr. Palomar. I've taken FMS, uh, functional movement screens, the selective functional movement assessment. I've done all of the, I'm a certified uh, sports trainer through DNF, uh, the Prague School of Dynamic Neuromuscular Stabilization courses. Um, And I've done other, you know, smaller things, um, kinesio taping, Lois Laney's restorative breathing course and a, a, a number of things. I'm I'm always taking something, yeah, either right. new stuff or retaking or retaking previous courses to get new information, that sort of thing. Now I'm very very into continuing ed. It's kind of my hobby, and a lot <laughs> yeah. of reading. I'm a I'm a voracious reader of technical stuff. Excellent. Now, did you say you took the SFMA too? I forget if you mentioned that or not. I did. You did, excellent. Several times. I've taken it three times, I think. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, obviously you've taken a lot of different techniques here. And so, you know, what's your general approach when a client comes to see you? You know, how do you marry those techniques that you've taken? <clears throat> well, that's the, that, that's the ongoing challenge is, you know, figuring out what my, what my special sauce is going to be, being that I have so many different ingredients. Uh, and that changes practically on a yearly basis. You know, my particular mix of tools that I use will change, and it varies depending on the specific case in front of me, too. Um, I mean, my my general philosophy that I employ is that I tend to deal with hardware problems first, so things like adhesion, scar tissue, nerve entrapments, and then I deal with all the software problems after that. So I mean that, and then I have different techniques for hardware problems, different te- techniques for software problems. NKT, of course, being being one of the primary ones, and then probably more so than anything else, ART active release technique is what I use for the hardware issues. All right. So um, so why don't you walk us through the patient that might come to you with lower back pain? You know, what does your initial visit look like? Uh, well. First and foremost, once I'm getting them checked in, is getting a good history. Uh, I, I tend to, I tend to spend a good while getting getting a very 
thorough history, you know, history of their complaints, uh, their background. You know, people always wonder why I'm asking them about injuries they had when they were six, when they're coming to me for back pain when they're 40. But you never know what relates to what. And oftentimes I do find very important information that's relevant to their current complaint very far back in their past and sometimes due to seemingly unrelated parts of the body. So once I get a really good history, uh, then I do uh, some sort of physical examination. It kind of depends. It depends on the person. It depends on the complaints, uh, kind of where I start with that. I usually do not start with SFMA. I, I usually do SFMA after I've already done some treatments, and I've already gotten, you know, I would say most of the way there with the problems. And I do the SFMA as a way of kind of figuring out where do I need to go next or what are some underlying things that I haven't found yet. I'm usually able to you know, use history and my palpation to hone in on the lion's share of the issue, if not the entire thing. Um, I've spent a lot of years kind of refining my palpatory skills, and I think they're 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 pretty high up there, and they have served me well, uh, as those who have seen me work can attest. Um, so I'll usually do a head-to-toe palpation uh, after after some sort of uh, posture assessment. I have an alignment grid in my office that I sometimes use, kind of a hands-on posture assessment I'll do. Um, and then the most important part is getting them on the table and getting my hands on and just seeing what I feel, what, what typo, what's hypotonic, uh, what's moving, what's not, how, uh, how are different layers of tissue moving against each other, you know, what areas do I have to work to reproduce symptoms or alleviate symptoms, so on and so forth. And I, I tend to let my hands guide the process and try not to get overly cerebral about it, which is very easy to do, particularly when you've, you know, taken lots of courses and read many, many books. It's very easy to get lost in one's head. So I try and keep grounded and really, really let my hands tell me where I need to go. So, um, so um, you know, just for example, I, I had a patient... Um, come in the other day, he was a pitcher, and he noticed on his follow-through, uh, his left lower back, so he's a right-handed pitcher, and on his follow-through, his left lower back was really painful on the follow-through. Um, so how exactly would you handle that right off the bat? You, you Obviously, you'd rule out red flags, um, look at his posture, then you would put him on the table and start pal- palpating him? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd have him try to reproduce the movements uh, so, so I could watch him do it. Uh, I have a space in my office for that. I'd want to kind of get hands-on so I can feel the area of their complaint as they're doing the movement so I can sort of feel what what seems to be activating. Uh, it, like, first and worst, you know, is the thing I always say. What, what's activating first and worst in, in the symptomatic area? And oftentimes I can get a lock on what structure I need to start with that way. And then I'll treat that using, using the NKT. Uh, and, and obviously in a case of a thrower, I'm not going to limit myself to the back itself. I'm going to look at shoulder mechanics. I'm going to look at thoracic rotation and extension. I'm going to look at hip mobility. 
you know, in, in a case like that where it's really a functional movement like that that is triggering the symptom, there would certainly be an SFMA screen performed for that, not necessarily right away, but maybe maybe by the second session or at the end of the first session I would do it just to, just to help me hone in on some kind of all the different areas that are contributing. Excellent. And, you know, one thing, so I just wanted to get your opinion on, you know, thoughts, because mine, like yours, are, are changing all the time as I, as I learn more. Um, but with this with this case, I found, you know, pretty immediately his QL, his left QL was, was going a little crazy. Uh, so mm-hmm. I forgot exactly what it was, con- oh, it was compensating for his transverse abdominis and his glute max. And that was just mm-hmm. you know, in the clear testing those muscles. Um, would you then, I mean, you find those two muscles, you know, would you start to think maybe about relational inhibition type of things as well when you, when you, when you you know, with his complaint, that narrow, right down there, you know the QL is involved. Do you want to see maybe if it's involved with other, you know, other relationships? Or are you happy with those two findings right there, transverse abdominis and glute max? Well, whether, whether I'm happy with the findings or not depends on, it, it depends on the tone of the QL. So, so again, I kind of let my hands guide me, and my palpation can tell me whether something's overactive, underactive, whether, or, or in a more general sense, whether there is dysfunction there or not. So if I palpate the QL and it feels really overactive to me, I'm going to look for things being inhibited by that QL. Or if, or if it feels, uh, or if it feels inhibited to me, I'm going to look for various things that are inhibiting it. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to kind of give up my search until the tone is restored to normal. You know, so I so I let my palpation tell me whether I'm done with it or not. As long as that area is hypertonic, I'm not done with it. There's still dysfunction, and it just means I haven't found it yet, and I've got to keep looking. Okay, so if I'm understanding you correctly, so let's say in my case, in that patient, you found those two things. You so you would treat the QL, retest those two things. Let's say they test uh, normal, but then you're yes. going to go back and continue to palpate the QL and make sure it feels better, is what you're telling me. And if it doesn't... Correct. Better, if, if the QL felt, like, substantially better and essentially normal to me, then I would probably move on and look for other components of that pattern. But if the QL still felt hypertonic, and I thought that that it was the most important area for that pattern, I would stick with it, and I'd look for more patterns. You know, I'd be, I'd be looking for more more things in the... You know, frontal plane movement, rotational movements, et cetera. Excellent, excellent. Now, so because then my next thought is, like you, you had mentioned too, you're going to consider his throwing mechanics and that stuff. So pretty mm-hmm. quickly you might find, like, you know, 10 different findings right off the bat. You know, maybe uh-huh. he has, you know, right scapular instability. Um, maybe his anterior delt's not working. You know, maybe you find a bunch of things, you know. Where, how do you prioritize uh, what you think might be the primary issue? Or is there a primary issue? It's, they're both related and need to be treated. Well, I mean, certainly there's going to be a primary issue, but it won't necessarily be the only thing. I, I, I just kind of prioritize based on my findings where I'm going to start, you know, what's going to be first, what's going to be second, kind of reevaluating constantly as I go and reevaluating it against the quality of the functional movement, in this case, the quality of their throw mechanics, 
but also against uh, against symptoms. And so if I determine, you know, like you said with the QL, if I determine that that's the kind of top priority of all the things that I found, which could be many different things, I'm going to stick with that till I think that's pretty good, or at least till it's no longer the worst thing. So if I found, you know, five different things wrong, if the QL is no longer number one, I'm going to re reorder those five things and work on the new number one. Because I find if you're always going after kind of the worst of the dysfunctions, you get the most kind of trickle-down effects to other areas of the body. You get the most change in the least amount of work if you treat that way. Right. So how do you, so okay, so let's say you, you, you cleared out QL and then all of a sudden you went to shoulder and shoulder's pretty significant, the findings there, um, and you clear that out, where do you go for your homework? Are you going to give like one thing for the QL maybe and one thing for the shoulder? Well, as a general rule, I'll, I'll give, unless they're like a particularly exceptionally driven individual, I'll usually only give one thing for homework, the one pattern to work on. So that is one stretch or release plus one movement, one repatterning exercise. And I'll pick which one I want to give based on the the move the the patterns that I corrected that had the greatest amount of positive effect. So if I if I release uh, QL to glute to get that glute firing again, and yeah, that took the edge off the QL, but it didn't really make a big change. I release it to lat, and that helped a little bit. But then I release it to on the multifidus, and that seems to make the biggest change in the tone of that QL. And the most symptomatic relief, that's going to be the pattern I give them. I'm going to do the one that seemed to have the biggest impact on them. That's the one I want them to reinforce because obviously that's a more primary pattern than the other ones were. Hmm. So you'll treat the muscle, you'll treat in this example the QL, and then you'll compare it to the multifidus. I'm just trying to understand because I usually would, you know, I would treat the QL and then I would recheck all three muscles. Let's say the glute max, you know, the transverse abdominis and the multifidus. You're, you would mm -hmm. do that separately? Is that what you're saying here? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't tend to do a lot of uh, chaining together of my tests because uh, I find it doesn't give me as much information that way. It's a very fast way to work, but I find it it it, it kind of lowers my resolution. It, may, it makes it harder for me to tell what's going on and what the impact was of each pattern that I corrected. Because my goal is to make the most amount of change in the least with, with the least amount of actual correction, with the least amount of inputs into the nervous system. So again, I prioritize based on palpation, and I don't care if there's 20 different patterns if there's 20 different muscles getting inhibited by that QL, because rest assured, probably one or two of them is actually important. And I don't want to just lump them all, to, all, all together. I want to find those one or two really important ones. And I'm going to use my palpation to hone in on those. And then I'm going to kind of reassess things after each treatment to see, or after, after each correction to see what sort of impact that had. And if it had a really big impact, I might move on to another area. If I got a really a really powerful change with a, a good amount of kind of trickle-down effect from that, 
I might move on to another part of that problem, you know, maybe working on thoracic mobility or scapular stability, something like that, so as to not overtax any one area. Definitely interesting. That's definitely a, a little different uh, thought process that, than, than I have. So I'm, I'm very excited about about that information. So you uh, <laughs> and going back to the palpation, you'll palpate the QL, but then you'll also palpate the multifidus. You know, whatever. Let's say again, the multifidus. Correct. Because when I start on the table, I'm I'm doing sort of a head to toe palpation, and I'm going to right off the bat identify the areas that feel most dysfunctional. Those are usually going to be hypertonic areas, the areas that feel the most dysfunctional. And I'm going to, and I actually write those down. I have a dry erase board in my office. I'll, I'll, I'll write down my findings, what areas seem the most significant and the most dysfunctional. And when I make a correction, I'm going to check the effect that that correction had on all those areas. Because often they're interrelated. Mm, that makes a lot of sense, my friend. Very exciting <laughs> stuff here. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm I'm thoroughly going to have to digest that. I'm looking forward to re-listening to what you just said because that was some 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 good stuff. And and, and that's the kind of stuff you know when you go to um you know you take the level one course and you you get I guess overwhelmed. And that's how you mentioned the, earlier about the <laughs> back in the day taking the class. A lot of people didn't put it into practice right now and. And that's you know interesting because we're we're seeing that a lot right now. A lot of people are 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 being overwhelmed by the material and they're not implementing it 110 percent. And uh, you know there is yeah. a lot of material in the class, and and, and 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 taking a class a second time is not a bad idea, even if you do implement well, it right away. Well, yeah, I mean the, the the class just kind of out of necessity, they're, they're teaching really just the bare bones basics in that level one course, and it's like if 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 you're trying to become a contractor, the level one course is like teaching you how to use a screwdriver, how to use a saw, how, how, to, how, to, use, you know, uh, how to use a level. It's not teaching you how to build anything. And that, that's where the more advanced classes come in. That's where the tutorials come in. That's where Skype sessions come in, where you're really how, learning how to use the tools that you pick up in level one to actually do great things and make huge changes in people's bodies. That it doesn't teach level one doesn't teach you strategy. It doesn't teach you how to prioritize your work, how, how to systematize your work. It's just trying to give you the tools you need to be able to then do that. And I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that after level one, that that's it. That they should have everything they need to be competent. And that's that's not the case. And it, it couldn't possibly be the case. It's too the nervous system in the body is far too complex for a couple of days of class to completely encapsulate the entire treatment, the, the potential of that entire treatment method. So people really need to stay on top of the follow-up training. Like I said, I was in monthly workshops for a decade with one of the creators of the technique. That's what it took for me. When, when, I, went to the, when I went to the class originally, it was... It was actually a longer class when I went because uh, they, they taught some releases and other stuff too in the work. And I want to say it was, I think, 12 days of class, something like that, or 16 days of class. I forget, I forget what it worked out to exactly. But, but it, it, was, it was much many more hours of class time. And I think after my first four or eight uh, class meetings, I was trying to treat a client 
with it. They they came in with a shoulder issue, <clears throat> and I and I just started. You know, I, I I made all the mistakes that everyone else makes when they're brand new. I just started testing everything and seeing what I found, and everything tested strong. I couldn't find a single failed test in this guy's shoulder, even though his shoulder was a complete train wreck. And I was not confident in the work. I didn't really, I, I didn't own the concept of relational inhibition yet. So I, I just kind of gave up, and I just kind of cursed quietly to myself and just went back to just massaging the area. And I knew I'd kind of try again later once I owned the material a little bit more. And again, I was still a trainer at the time, so I had no shortage of willing subjects letting me to test this stuff out. So if someone had, you know, an acre of pain out on the gym floor, I could just do a little testing, and I started to get more confident with the material that way. And it also helped that I was doing massage so part-time. I only had a handful of clients that I would see, mostly just because I I enjoyed doing the massage. It was fun for me. Uh, so it's not like I had to figure out how to integrate NKT into an existing massage practice or to transition clients from massage to NKT or how to blend the two. I pretty much just started from scratch doing 100% NKT in all my sessions. So I got a lot of practice very quickly. Of course, you know, I was getting far better results with the NKT than I was with any of my previous work, so my practice slowly started growing until, you know, 10 years later, I didn't even have time to do any training, and now I'm just a full-time body worker. Well, that's that's excellent, and that's a wonderful story because, again, you know, you, we, we read those posts every day on the Scholars page about people getting frustrated and they don't feel confident, and your story is, is my story, is every other person that's successful with this story is that you know we struggled at first but once you start implementing it it becomes easier and and really level one as you said is all about learning the tests you learn the tests and then you go to level two and it puts so many answers so many questions and puts so much together um so yes uh you know that's yeah because in level two they actually you know to return to my metaphor they start teaching how to build things they actually start teaching how to use those tools more to do something bigger, to treat larger dysfunction, larger patterns, not just this muscle against this muscle anymore. You know, because, I mean, you, you can just learn how to test the muscles from a book. You're not going to be good at it, but, I mean, you, you need to really learn the thought process and the fine-tuning and refining your testing skills and understanding, you know, how to transition from someone walking in your door to you knowing what to start testing. You know, learn, learning that process, and that—that's what comes with—that's what comes with experience. Bingo. So, um, so we went through a basic lower back case. Can you, you? You always post some incredible cases. Can you just tell me? You know, share with us. You know, another extraordinary case that you had recently that you thought was pretty interesting. Real, real quick. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's see. I think I actually posted this one on the scholars page. I mean, I, I see some pretty interesting things every day, but you do start to get a little kind of inoculated against <laughs> how interesting it really is when you see it all the time. But but every now and again, you see one that either lets you use kind of a skill set that you don't have to use that frequently, or you just get a spectacular result. And 
one that stands out for me, this was just a couple weeks ago, I think. Uh, it was a client with a shoulder issue. She had had a, had a very uh, traumatic injury to the elbow, and there was a lot of nerve damage, and she still had hardware in place. And so I had been treating that, but in our conversations while I was treating that, she was mentioning some other issues she was having. Uh, headaches, uh, inability to concentrate, um, just trouble maintaining train of thought, facial pain. And she, uh, I, I decided to check her eye movement out. So I, I did some uh, kind of eye tracking drills just to see what I could see there. And I noticed her left eye had quite a bit of nystagmus. And there were just certain ranges of motion that she, she really couldn't get into that position and maintain focus. Her eye, her eye would just slither to and fro. She couldn't really stay comfortably in that position. And she would be physically uncomfortable when looking in that position for any length of time. So I, I started testing her eye muscles against each other. And I found some patterns uh, from left superior rectus to inferior rectus, left uh, lateral to medial, and then I found a right lateral to left lateral and uh, right lateral to left lateral, no, right lateral to left medial and left lateral to right medial. And so a half a dozen really, really relevant patterns with her eye muscles. And when I retested her, uh, her, her eye tracking was perfect. She wasn't getting any more than nystagmus. And she reported a significant reduction, actually, in the facial pain she had been experiencing. And, but more importantly, she said that she could actually focus and concentrate, that she felt a mental clarity that she had not felt in a long time. And I had her get up and kind of walk up and down my hallway, which I tend to have people do periodically through sessions to help the nervous systems integrate. And I, and I noticed her gait had actually changed as well, just from treating the eye movement. And then what, what I wasn't expecting is she actually mentioned that the pain in her arm had actually significantly reduced just from treating the eyes. So I honestly hadn't anticipated that part, but it was a pleasant surprise. And, and that was just from NKT on the eye muscles. Amazing, amazing, and that's something we cover in uh, level three, definitely. Mm -hmm. So exciting, exciting stuff. And you know, um, one thing you've been doing lately, which I know every single person on the on the scholars page is greatly appreciative, is your pro tips. Um, yes, it's wonderful. I mean, it's extremely helpful, even for people that have been using NKT for a while. We're picking stuff up. So why don't you give us, uh, you know, another tip or two right now? Oh geez, maybe maybe you could be a little more specific. Like a tip about what? Um, I don't know, man. You have so many good things. I'm thinking off the top of your head. You know, let's see. Um, how about something with the neck? Testing the neck muscles. Something with the neck. Yeah, Okay, well, I mean, the, the first, first thing I can say is when treating, the, when testing the neck, test very lightly. Uh, people, people are very prone to strain if they try and test too firmly. 
in the neck, and I will often, when I'm releasing my pressure from the test, I'll do so gradually as opposed to just suddenly releasing the pressure because some people will go into spasm when you release the pressure from the test, particularly like in an SCM test or an anterior scaling test. People will often kind of charley horse in the muscle if you let go of the pressure too quickly. So I tend to kind of scale it back after they've met my pressure or failed to meet my pressure. Excellent. Very, very, very good idea. And then how about the shoulder? What do you got for the shoulder? Something interesting there. Uh, one of my top tips for the shoulder is to watch for uh, scapular retraction and elevation. Uh, people will often kind of suck their shoulder in and up when there's instability and they're trying to pass your test and they're trying to meet your pressure. So oftentimes testing like a posterior deltoid, for instance, this is one people are notorious for cheating on. You know, you'll, you'll get a solid lock on the posterior deltoid, but then you just take their arm and just gently kind of traction it out a little bit to open up the joint, then retest them and they have no strength because they were gaining their strength from compressing and packing the joint. They didn't actually have any strength in the muscle you were trying to test. But if, you're, if all you're paying attention to is what your hands are feeling, you know, that they're actually able to meet your pressure, you're going to completely miss that because that's something you have to see happening. So it's good as a rule just to unpack the shoulder before you test, I mean, anything, but particularly posterior deltoid. Yeah, I noticed, well, you met, you did post the other day recently about the serratus anterior, and um, mm -hmm. no, it's not, you're not testing, uh, you know, for flexion. Yeah, because uh, the serratus anterior test is, is often taught more as a movement of the arm, and, and that is how you do the test, but people are losing sight of what you're actually looking for as you have them resist with your arm. You're looking for a loss of scapular stability, not of an inability to meet your pressure. They can meet your pressure just fine and still fail miserably on the test. You can have meet your pressure, but their scapular wings when they try to perform that test. Just like you can have them fail to meet your pressure, but the scapula is a total lock, which is actually one of the most common findings is people will, uh, oh, well, people will misattribute a failure to the test because the arm gave way even though the scapula did not destabilize. And that's not a failure of the serratus anterior. That's a failure of something in the shoulder, you know, which you'd have to, you know, do some passive TL to figure out what exactly. Excellent, excellent, excellent tip. Well, well, well this has been uh, wonderful so far, so uh, I greatly appreciate you talking to me. But before we um, go, you know, as you mentioned, you, um, you read a lot, you take a lot of courses. Uh, what can you give me some recommendation aside from obviously continuing on with NKT? What are some courses mm -hmm. uh, that that you think would help an NKT pr practitioner? Uh, you you broke up a little bit when you asked that question. You're, you're asking for books or courses or what? Oh, uh, courses. I'm sorry. First is courses. Yeah. What courses do you think might be helpful for uh, you know an NKT practitioner? What complements NKT pretty well that that you think? Um, certainly learning good palpatory anatomy. Uh, I think the better your understanding of the anatomy and the relationships, the, the anatomy and the kinesiology, I think the better your insights are going to be with your NKT. 
if you just have, you know, sort of a, a functional understanding, a rudimentary understanding of all that, you're really only going to be able to find the most basic patterns. So I, I think people who study up on their anatomy and really understand the anatomical and functional relationships between different areas, uh, it, it makes the work almost just too easy because everything just kind of makes sense why this area would be involved in a pattern with this area and why if you have weakness here that you should check these areas here and so on and so forth. If you combine that with good palpation skills, you know, the, you can do what the veterans do, which is, you know, kind of they, they're, they're faced with a complaint or a symptom. They, they sort of develop kind of a plan, a strategy, what they think is going on, what the likely suspects are, then use your palpation to determine of those likely suspects who really seems to be involved, and you start your testing there. Instead of, you know, what me and Bob Gazo, both former Marines like to call the spray and pray approach. You know, like Rambo with a machine gun, just like test everything until you find something, which is not an approach I'm a fan of. No, no, not at all. Excellent. And so uh, what book are you reading right now, you know, related to um, uh, the work you do? Geez, right now? Um, you have to think. I'm kind of, I'm kind of plugging away at several right now. <laughs> of course. Look at my, look at my bookcase here. Uh, I think I was rereading Gray Cook's books, okay. Movements. Nice. So that that's always a good one, of course. Um, I think I was working through. I'm doing a lot of rereading. I was rereading uh, Shirley Sarman's Diagnosis and Treatment of Movement Impairment Syndrome. That's one I actually read, geez, probably 10 years ago when I was just a trainer and not even doing body work. It just seemed really interesting to me. And I learned a lot from it, but rereading it, I, of course, learned a lot more. And then I'm also working on uh, Sasha from Robert Schleip, his kind of epic work on Sasha. Interesting. I, did, I, did, I took some of his courses a while back as well. Excellent. And, um, you know, what's a, what, what, what upcoming course are you, are you going to be taking next? What's the next thing you're taking? Geez, I think the next thing, I'm, I'm currently retaking the series of PDTR courses. Um, looking to probably be an instructor for that in 2014, so I've got to make sure I'm fully brushed up on everything. Um, I might retake uh, Lois's restorative breathing course again this year. Uh, I think that definitely lends, lends to a second, a second attempt just to really own everything she was presenting. Um, probably going to be retaking some ART courses. You know, as, as you know, you have to research every year. Uh, but I, I tend to like to take a few courses every year because I feel like I just get better every time. Definitely. Um, I'm sure other stuff will come up that I will take. I, I might take a rock tape course. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I, do, I do Kinesio, but you know, I'm looking at possibly uh, switching brands to rock, and I just kind of want to learn the ins and outs of that tape, anything that, I mean, I know their approach to taping is very differently, but I'm more interested in just kind of learning, learning their system overall, seeing how it differs from Kinesio, and kind of going from there, deciding which tape I'd prefer to use, which system I'd prefer to use. 
Excellent. I like running multiple different systems and just deciding which I like best and which parts of what I like doing best. It's kind of like the mixed martial arts of body work. <laughs> Amen. I, I like that as well. As well, that's kind of how I've been myself throughout my career. Although I don't quite think I've taken as many classes as you, but uh, I'm, I'm working on it. Now, I also know, and I didn't mention, is is uh, that you are a NKT instructor as well. Do, do you have any courses in the works that you're going to be teaching anytime soon? Uh, not right now. Uh, I have the fortune slash misfortune of being located only an hour from David Weinstock. So usually courses that, you know, usually where there is demand in my neck of the woods, he's teaching the courses. So the opportunities for me to teach courses are fewer and far between because he's right here. He can teach them. But once the work gets big enough that, you know, there's multiple courses going in California at the same time or in neighboring states at the same time, then I'll probably have a lot more teaching opportunities. Definitely. And I'm sure, as we've been talking a little bit on the, on the Facebook page about having the, an NKT symposium in maybe 2015, I'm sure there'll be some teaching opportunities for some workshops for you there as well, because I know everybody... Oh, I'm sure. And I, and I, teach, I teach, you know, monthly advanced tutorials where we're covering material that kind of goes beyond level three. I mean, because even, I mean, all, all of the kind of seminar series one, two, and three, that's still all very basic NKT. And it goes light years beyond that. So I, I tend to go, I, I tend to delve outside of the course curriculums for my seminars. And there are a lot of veteran practitioners in my area, because my area is where it all started. So, I mean, we've got many people in the class that have been doing it for 10 years or more. But then we've also got some new folks in the area so uh, the courses, even though it's more advanced material, as you know, the more you learn about NKT, it makes it easier, not harder. So they're, they're able to hang in just fine with the material that I cover. Well, I know I speak for a lot of us is that we always look forward to your recap posts <laughs> to <have> your tutorial. <laughs> yeah, I, I slapped after the last one, and Marissa Macias called me on it. She likes to harass me on Facebook. So I gave a belated recap of my my last tutorial. She did. I know she was waiting uh, anxiously, as we all were, because, uh, yeah. you know, we're learning it. And like you said, you know, taking the classes is just the basic level. But, um, you know, if we could all come to your office and hang out with you, I, I'm sure we would learn uh, a tremendous amount. So, um, again, um, thank you so much for joining me tonight on this uh, first episode. It was uh, a, w a wonderful talking to you and, and getting a little bit of insight. I, I mean, I know there's a lot more questions that were going through my head, so maybe I'll have to speak to you again. Uh, but, again, thank yeah, you uh, so down. much for, uh, for, for talking to me tonight. And, um, and again, so this was uh, the great Thomas Wells, uh, neurokinetic therapy instructor, joining us tonight for the inaugural podcast of Inside the Brain Of. Uh, my name is Eric Nelson, another NKT instructor. In fact, I will be teaching a class in New Jersey in June, and I'm almost finalized a class, a level one class in Denver for May. So keep an eye on the upcoming uh, schedule seminars. There's a bunch going on right now. Uh, but anyways, if you have any questions about anything you heard tonight or, or you want some more information on NKT, feel free to send me an email at chirorehab at hotmail.com. That's C-H-I-R-O-R-E-H-A-B at hotmail.com. 
thank you for joining us tonight, and I hope to speak to you soon.